Genesis 14, we are going to uh, pick it up in verse one, right after we pray. We gotta pray, we need the help of the Holy Spirit to be able to understand, and just as importantly, it's not enough just to understand and nod our head, but to receive the word of God. So if the word of God is speaking and we're listening, it's gonna transform our lives. Um, God is in the business of conforming us to the image Uh, to the maturity, right, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to think like him. We need to know his word, okay? So let's ask the Lord for his help. Father, we do not wanna be guilty of just sitting in a service and listening to, to facts and data and information and considering your word as just a book. Uh, Your word is your word, the Bible is we believe it, it's you, it's, it's the word of God. And so, Lord, we want, to, we want to be able to receive it as such, and so God, would you help us this morning? Uh, Lord, you see what all these people name themselves. You know I'm a man of stumbling lips, and, and so, Lord, we just ask for the help in just reading your word, uh, but we want to understand it. And so, Lord, would you open our understanding, would you bind the enemy and the lies between our flesh and the the lies that the world tells and and the lies of devils as to why we can't take insight from Genesis chapter 14 and see it applied to our lives. And and so Lord, let us be done with excuses and fleshly wisdom and fleshly reasoning and, and Lord, help us to just truly receive your word Again, Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters. Lord, I think about everything that, that Mark Schaefer's family is going through and losing Mark's father and, and Lord, with the, the, the goal of, of seeing Maranatha buy into the vision and, and, and Lord, again, we just ask for comfort for Mark's family and, and for Living Faith Tampa. Uh, by extension, Lord, would you supply them the facilities that they need and if that's through Maranatha Church, we. We just trust you for that, and if not, we'll, we'll trust you for that. Uh, Lord, would you bless our brothers and sisters all over the world, God, um, as, uh, as disciples that are near and dear to us, worship and study your word. God, we pray that these would be fruitful times, and so would you bless in, in Lee Summit, and in Tampa, and in Boston, and Denver, and Laramie, and, and Vietnam, and, and Nairobi, and Lord, Uh, Dallas, Lord, would you bless them? Uh, Would you encourage them? Lord, would you help them not to grow weary in well-doing? Would you allow them to get full of faith because they've met with you today and they've heard from you today and and Lord, they're encouraged and strengthened uh, to continue in the work. Again, Lord, we pray for brothers and sisters uh, right now with the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Lord, please, we, we beg your, your, your comfort, your protection, but Lord, that, that brothers and sisters uh, in Europe and in Ukraine and in Russia, that they get full of faith and they would, they would remember that they're strangers and pilgrims in this world and this is an incredible time to preach Christ and him crucified and and uh, Lord, I think about Romania next door and we just ask that Doug Howie would be encouraged and that he'd remember, Lord, you've called him for such a time as this. And, and so Lord, we, we just ask that your will would be done uh, for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, Genesis chapter 14, verse one. If you're taking notes, you wanna be taking notes, this is your first blank. We, what we're gonna see here today is a desperate battle. Uh, pray for me, these names are a mouthful. Genesis chapter 14, verse one says, and it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. King of Shinar, so this is a successor of Nimrod, right? I wonder what discipleship looked like at Babel. I wonder what this guy's motivation and his, uh, his agenda will be. Will it fall out to smooth sailing for Abram and for God's promises over his life? No way, no how. So he's a, he's a Shinar guy. Arioch, king of Elisar. Kedor Le'amor, king uh, Omar, king of uh, Elam. And title king of nations, title king of nations. That word nations, I'm gonna have a map for you in a second. That word nations is goyim. A lot of times the the Hebrew speaking people will refer to Gentiles as Goyim. Okay, that's just the nations, okay? Title, king of nations, that these made war. Okay, so what do we have here? We've got four aggressor, aggressor kingdoms from Babylon and Elam. Elam is the old name for the Persian uh, area, Persian empire. So let's look at this on the map. Let's go ahead and, and throw this up. Um, what you're gonna see then is Elam all the way there to the east. There's Babylon in the middle. And then up above, Elisar and Goyim. Goyim is titles area. It's a, it's a nation conglomerate. Uh, he's, got sev- he's, he's over a, 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 a multinational kingdom there to the north. So they're gonna meet up and then come down and attack these five kings in the, where, where you see the, 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 the Dead Sea today, if you look over here, there's the Great Sea, the Mediterranean on the extreme west or the, the, your left on the image. Um, I don't know if you can see the pond up north just under Dan, but that would be the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. And then you follow the Jordan Valley all the way down to the Dead Sea. At this time, that is the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not the Dead Sea at this point, it's like Eden. It's very plush, it's very lush. Okay, so these kings from the north and the east, they're four, they're, they're, they're a confederation of four against five. And what we're gonna see in a minute is that these aggressor, these aren't just any aggressors, okay? These nations have the military might and capability to take on giants. Uh, they ain't scared. They're, they're all about, they know what they're getting into and they're willing to throw down and get it done. And they're making war against these five kings uh, that, that are in the Sodom and Gomorrah area. So verse two, these made war with Barak king of Sodom and with Bersha king of Gomorrah Shinab king of Adma, and Shemeber king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. And all these were joined together in the Vale of Siddim. Today, it's the Salt Sea. The Dead Sea is what we would call it today, which is the Salt Sea. So what you have is a reference that's taking place. You, you know, even at the time of, of Moses writing this, even at the time of Moses writing this, it's already the Dead Sea, okay? Chapter 19's already gone down, and, and so this is a reference point for us. Uh, this, these are pics from our, one of our LFBI Israel trips uh, there in the Dead Sea. If you see the picture there uh, with everybody hulking out in front of the Dead Sea, if you look in the back, look at all the people floating. I don't know if you can see them. They're probably like little specks, 
but the, they're like, the head and shoulders are above in the water. Uh, you wanna get this on your, like this is on your bucket list, okay? Be praying that Israel opens up, that LFBI can uh, start taking trips, study trips back into Israel. Um, save about three to four thousand dollars. Get that on your bucket list. Come with us to Israel. Uh, it will be a, a, a very good educational experience. Okay, so before it looked like this, it was paradise. It was like the Garden of Eden. It was like Egypt as you come to Zoar. Okay, it's a it's a plush place. Genesis 13 verse 10 describes it. Lot lifts up his eyes. This is why he wants to live here. He beholds all the plain of Jordan. It's well watered. Again, it's like this. It's lush because the Lord hasn't destroyed it yet, but it's even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Verse four. Twelve years they served Kedor la Amor, or Amer, Omer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Okay, so of course it's number 13, lucky number 13. Something's going down uh, in the 13th year. And of course catastrophe comes. And no wonder because now we find the Nephilim. Look at verse five. And in the 14th year came Kedor la Amor, Omar, Omer? Yeah, Kedor la Omer. I won't be able to say that again next time. Kedor la Omer. Every time you hear me say some gibberish, just remember Kedor la Omer. And the kings that were with him and smote the, uh, the Rephaims, okay? And the, 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 the Rephaims, these are, well, well, we'll see who they hang out with. Who do they hang out with? Oh, they hang out with the Zuzems. The Zuzems, and ha- oh, well, who do they hang out with? And the Emims, <laughs> right? The Emims. Uh, so you got Rephaims, the Zuzems, and the Emims. Who are these? Oh, and the Horhites. The Horhites in, Mount, uh, in, in their Mount Seir unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. I mean, who are these guys? Who are these Rephaims, these Emims, uh, these Zuzems? Who are these Horhites? So the king, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the two guys, it's in the days of Amraphel, but the instigator, the big gun, is Kedor La Omer. Uh, he is the guy that, that, that's wanting to get the gold. He's wanting to get the goods from this Sodom and Gomorrah area. And he knows he's gonna have to deal with some pretty bad dudes in the process. Whenever you study in your Bible these Rephaims, who, who are you gonna find them to be? Well, these are the guys that are hanging out in Goliath's neighborhood. Uh, let me give you a couple cross-references on the, the Rephaims. First uh, Samuel 17. You'll want to read that. You'll want to read 2 Samuel chapter 5, particularly verse 22. It's on a plain in this neighborhood. So these are dwelling in the Canaan land. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 10 describes the Emims. The Emims dwelt therein in the land in times past, a people great, many, and tall, like the Anakims. Anakims, that's the race of their giants. The Bible's very clear over and over that the Anakims are a giant race, which were, oh, well, it's right there, verse 11, which also were accounted giants as the Anakims, but the Moabites call them Emims. Oh, well, there you go. So the Emims, they're the Anakims, and the Moabites call them such. They call them Emims. Deuteronomy chapter two, look down in verse 20. 
that also was accounted a land of giants. Giants dwelt therein in old time, and the Ammonites called them Zamzum Mems. So you got Emems, and then you got Zamzum Mems. What, what kind of Mems are we talking about? Are they the E or the Zamzum? Either way, you don't, you don't want them for a neighbor, okay? These are bad dudes, they're giants. The Ammonites call them Zamzum Mems. Now remember Numbers chapter 13. Whenever the 12 spies go into the land, what do they see? Oh, they see some, An- they see the family of Anak, they see the Zamzums, the Zamzumems, the Emems, right? They see these guys, they see the Rephaims, and, and uh, they, 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 well, they, they poop their tunics. That's what they did. Now, I'm not sure about the Horhites, but note the company that they keep, okay? Uh, they're, they're keeping company with these giants. And so here's the issue. This is what we already saw in Genesis chapter six. Genesis chapter six, verse four says, there were giants in the earth in those days. And when, when else? And also after that. So it's not gonna be just Genesis chapter six that we deal with the giants. And you guys, everybody knows the story of David and Goliath. Um, you say, I don't know if I believe any of that. Any of that. I, I just don't know if I believe any of that. Uh, man, I don't know what else to tell you. It's in the Bible. And, um, and the claim is, is that the Smith, Smithsonian and, and government, uh, governments, not just in America, but around the world, anytime giant bones are discovered, those disappear, they get boxed up, and they end up in some government basement somewhere. I don't know. I've never seen any. I've seen old newspaper articles, old newspaper clippings, um, you know, if you ever want to go down a rabbit hole, just type into your browser giant conspiracies and, and you'll lose a whole day, okay? The Bible says they're real, and we're not talking about some euphemism for someone who gets a lot done. No, they're, notice what it said in Deuteronomy. They're very tall. <laughs> they're great, many, and tall. They're giant, these are literal physical giants. Okay, so what did we see? What happened in Genesis chapter six when there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that? Well, it's when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children unto them. The same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And then it goes on in Genesis chapter six to show that these mighty men are literal Nephilim. They are giants. They are bullies, they are tyrants, and, and so we covered all of that in Genesis chapter six, you can check it out. Uh, here it is in a nutshell, the big argument will be that in Genesis chapter six, the sons of God marrying the daughters of men, that that's an issue of the godly line of Seth marrying the wicked line of Cain. Anytime in the history of humanity you've got a godly person marrying a wicked person, whenever they have kids, they're never giants. Right, a, a godly person marrying a wicked person results in what? Just another baby, okay? <laughs> it's just another baby, not some hybrid, not some chimeric uh, deformity of humanity. And you remember what we saw in Genesis chapter six? All fle- what did the text say? All flesh was corrupted on the earth. So we saw what was happening is God had to, God had to, in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, he's hitting the reset button on the human genome. Well, what do you have? Well, it's also after that. 
Why, why mess with the human genome? Why is there a recession? And we talked about this in Daniel chapter two, in the last days, in the kingdoms of the world, in the last days, what are you gonna have? Well, you're gonna have whoever they are. You got a hanging pronoun in Daniel chapter two. They shall mingle their seed, right? Their seed will be mingled with the seed of men. So whoever they are, they have a seed, and men have a seed, and, and they don't cleave. Why, what do you have? There's a corruption that takes place in the last days. What's the obsession of medical science in these last days? Did you get your update? <laughs> right, I mean, what, man, with CRISPR, Katie bar the door. What are we doing? We are messing with the human genome. And, and uh, there's a lot, you know, when they mess with the genome, there's a lot they know in terms of what it does. But uh, we're, like a, we're like a bunch of monkeys with a gun. We know it goes boom, but man, we don't know the trig to get that shot at 800 yards. You see what I'm saying? We know what, we know what you can do with CRISPR, but we don't know what else you can, you can, like we don't know what CRISPR will do to you. And so that, I'm just saying, exercise some caution with the medicals of wonders, you know, the wonders of medical science in the last days, because in the last days, whoever they are, they are messing with the human genome. Check it out, Daniel chapter two. Okay, so what is all of this? This is Satan messing with the seed of the woman. Satan knows that the seed of the woman is his undoing. And he saw it at Calvary. He lost his power to keep humanity, enemies, alien enemies from God. He lost that at the cross of Calvary. Guess what? What started at Calvary will be finished in the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, Satan, right, the Antichrist armies will be defeated. Satan will be captured and thrown into a bottomless pit uh, for a thousand years. Okay, so what's Satan doing? He's attacking the seed of the woman because he knows the seed of the woman is his undoing. So here we have Abraham in the land of Canaan and just like in Genesis chapter six, so Satan is sowing corruption into the land because if Abraham's descendant can intermarry <coughs> with these chimeric beings, uh, well then it's no longer the seed of the woman, it's also partly the seed of the sons of God. And that's his objective. His goal is to overturn the seed of the woman. With that first prophecy in Genesis chapter three and verse 15, you see Satan reacting. God acts, Satan counteracts, right? He reacts to that with the goal of undoing the seed of the woman. You have to try really hard to miss that in your Bible. Verse seven, and they returned and came to En Mishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hazizon, Tamar. And there went out of the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, the same is Zoar. They joined battle with them in the vale of Siddim. So these kings rally against, you right, these kings rally against this. Look at verse nine, they rally against uh, Kedor la Mor, or Kedor la Omer. They rally against him and his confederation of four kingdoms. Verse nine. And with title, king of nations, the king of Goyim, and Amraphel, the king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Elisar, four kings with five. And the vale of Siddim, watch this now, was full of slime pits. 
And the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountain. Verse 11. And they, Kedor La Omer and his partners, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah. The five king defense is defeated. So they take all their stuff, all their victuals, and went their way. We, we pronounce that today, vittles, right? All their goods, all their food, they take them. They take the people captive. Okay, verse 12, that brings us to point number two, a deluded brother. So they took what in verse 11? They took everything, all the goods, all their victuals, and went their way. And verse 12, they took Lot. They took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who pitched his tent toward Sodom. Where is he now? Man, he's had a change of address, hasn't he? From the last chapter, already. I mean, it's just Sodom is pulling him in, who dwelt in Sodom. Now he lives there. He's got Sodom ID on his, on his chariot license. I mean, he's, 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 he's picked out a neighborhood. They took him and his goods and departed. So get this down in your notes, war is hell. Don't let anybody tell you different. Anybody that's arguing for war, they're not thinking it through, war is hell. Now Abram's family is in trouble, Lot was captive. And so here's Sodom, Lot's new home, in this plush place. His new home is now taken and plundered. Lot and his whole family are now prisoners and they're carried off as slaves. So all of the great wealth that Lot had, it's gone in a moment. Everything that he gained when he was with Abram, when he was with Abram, all he could do was win, 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 never stop, okay? Now here he is, he's separated himself from God's man, he's separating himself from this place where he received all this blessing and now he wants to live the good life in Sodom. And so what happened? Right, everything that he gained is now gone because he set that first decision to turn away from God's man and he set his face toward Sodom. That was the beginning of his undoing. So what happened? He was running to get a life for himself in a place of pleasure. So how's that working out for you? James chapter one, verse 14 tells you that every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. What happens is temptation flirts with your lust and it entices you and, and then, you know, temptation and your lust get down and do the dirty and your lust conceives and it has a sin baby. Do you see that in James chapter one? Like you can end up impregnated with sin. Temptation entices your lust. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin and sin when it is finished, your sin baby grows up and kills you. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Oh man, how Lot in chains and shackles is wishing he'd had never left. He's thinking, I know it's not time yet, but I wish I'd have pulled in Naomi. Um, Ruth, Naomi says, uh, Naomi says, I gotta go. I gotta go back to the land, back to the place of blessing. And Ruth's whole attitude, you stay here, girls. No, not without me. Uh, how I wish I would have just, just told Abram, you can't, you can't get rid of me even if you try, you know? God was in it all. Lot was living in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
There's no reason he should have been shocked that any of this came to pass. Proverbs 22 verse three tells you, a prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. That's such an important principle. God says the same thing again in chapter 27 and verse 12. So understand, even after Lot is delivered by Abram, here's how messed up this kid is. He, Abram has to deliver him. Abraham has to rescue him. And when it's all done, Lot goes back to Sodom like a, like a dog to its vomit. So here's the principle. Get this down in your notes. Unteachable people, they exist. Unteachable people do not learn from teaching. They don't learn from doctrine. Neither do they learn from catastrophe. They don't learn from disaster. Uh, some people refuse to learn, and, and the reality is there's some people that you cannot help because they refuse to learn. The school of hard knocks is working overtime to get them a right ed- education. The school of hard knocks is testing them over and over to make sure they've got a right perspective on life, and it's all to no avail. Let me put it another way. Stupid people will not learn from hard lessons. They just keep going back. How many know somebody, I mean, I'm not, don't point at the person next to you. How many know somebody like that? It's like over and over again, all the time. It's like these people never learn. And every time they try to do the same thing from a different avenue or from another direction, they end up getting the same results. What did Einstein say about just keep, keep doing the same things over and over, expecting different results? What did he call that? Insanity, right? And yet, so many of God's people seem to be insane. Proverbs 26, verse 11 says, as a dog returneth to his vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. Second Peter 2, verse 22, but it has happened unto them according to the true proverb. The dog is turned to his own vomit again. You ever watch a dog eat vomit? Have you ever watched it? I mean, it's like horrible. I can't look away whenever I see it happen. It's like, that is a... <laughs> nastiest thing ever. And they're like being, I'm like, like, bro, bro, you just barfed that up. Like you couldn't keep that down, but here you are. Little taste. Huh, that's not so bad. And then you're lapping up what you just, your body just rejected. Like, don't ever kid yourself. My dog is so smart. Watch him. <laughs> He'll prove you wrong. Second Peter chapter two, verse 22. But it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Hey, pig, we got you cleaned up. Put a bow right over your ear. You look so cute. Eh, we'll see about that. It's, it's, it's in the nature of the flesh. I remember in high school uh, coming in on Monday morning and hearing the same kids tell the same story over and over again. Man, Friday's party was so awesome. Tell me what happened. <laughs> like, bro, you were there. What, what are you talking about? You're asking, you're asking Rick to tell you what happened on Friday. It's like, I was so smashed. Oh, man, my, uh, you know. And then they're talking about how miserable they were and I just I threw up. Like I threw up all Saturday afternoon and, and Sunday and my like, head was killing me. My head still hurts and, and uh, before the week is over, where's the party on Friday? And it's like, dude, you're killing yourself. 
and you don't even remember that you had fun. I mean, what in the world? You're like blacking out at these parties. And they just tell that, just Monday morning reports of stupid people. (laughs) Trying the same thing, right? The same terrible thing over and over and expecting different results. Uh, This Friday is gonna be awesome. No, it won't. You're gonna end up passed out drunk, violated in some way. I mean, high school kids are gonna make sure you're taken care of, you're passed out drunk. They're writing all kinds of perversion and stuff all over your face and, or worse. It's insane. You say, well, I wouldn't do anything that stupid. You know, I've never ate my own vomit. I don't wallow in the mire. I don't do things like, well, what are you doing? How is temptation, right, appealing to your lusts? What's impregnating your life with sin? Because that is killing, right? That's killing your growth. That's killing your spiritual vitality. What is it that you keep doing? This is the way most good Christians think today. Uh, I know I've got this in my life, whatever it is. Maybe it's a bad habit. Maybe it's that mundane, okay? Or maybe you've got an issue where pornography is wrecking your ability to relate rightly with your spouse. Uh, Maybe it's something on that scale. Maybe the way you work, the way you're earning a living, you're lying, you're cheating, and you're stealing. I don't know, whatever it is, okay? So you see that thing and you recognize it's hindering a right relationship with God, with God's people, whatever that looks like. I know this is a problem, but I've got whatever it is going on in my life, someday I'm gonna get that straightened out. You guys follow that logic chain? This is the way most, of, most people think through these things today. I know that this is a problem, but here's what's going on in my life. And so some, it's like the diet. I know I'm overweight and I'm flirting with type two diabetes, taking me out. I recognize that there needs to be a change, but Oreos taste so great and I've got a cupboard full of them Once I eat them all, then that next January, I'll start my diet. And it just never comes. Okay, that's a silly, ludicrous example that's frankly true in so many cases. I know that something's wrong, but, brother, sister, that stinky butt is ruining your life. At some point, you just wanna repent of that butt and make the decision to move forward in faith. God's word says it, that settles it, and so, God, so help me. God, by your grace, make your word reality over my life. Lot goes back to Sodom, like a dog to its vomit, like a sow to the mire. But man, thank God for Abram, look at verse 13. Here we have a dynamic believer. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, It's the first time we see him titled this way in the Bible. Told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner. These were confederate with Abram. These guys are all running together, right? They're like-minded. So Hebrew comes from Eber. Eber means crossed over. Abraham the Hebrew. Uh, it's, a, it's a play on his ancestry. He is, it's, it's related to uh, his ancestor Eber, but the, but the name Eber means crossed over, and that's what Abram did. He crossed over from a life, on, right, a life in the plain of Shinar 
to follow God as a stranger and a pilgrim in Canaan. And so what's the picture? Abraham, his life pictures that of a crossed over believer today. It's a picture of a newborn, right? A born again believer in Jesus Christ. It's a description, it's a picture, it's an illustration of the, of the believer's relationship with Christ. At some point, you cross over. You cross over from a life in the flesh, a life in this world, to becoming a person who is in the world but not of it anymore. You're a stranger and a pilgrim. Uh, you're an ambassador in this world now for Christ. You're crossed over, you're out of the world and now you're in the person of Christ. Your life has changed. In the world, not of it. Stranger, you're a pilgrim. You belong to the Lord. So what happens when this crossed over man hears about Lot being taken captive? Verse 14, and when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants. So they weren't just watching sheep. They were also training in military combat tactics. These are his trained servants. He arms them, he arms his trained servants, born in his own house, 318. So you take the 318, add Abram, that gives you how many men? 319, um, some people make the case, no, Abram's counted in that. I don't know, we can, we can argue with an English major. So you, you see they pursue them, the Bible says, unto Dan. So what's happening here? What's the picture there? What's the illustration there? Well, Abraham hears about a lost soul. Here's someone who's lost in this world. And so he can't just shrug his shoulders and say, I knew Lot was stupid. He's getting his just desserts. No, he had to do something. He couldn't just sit by and do nothing. This is Lot. He can't just shake his head at Lot's stupidity and say, you know, well, what can I do? The wages of sin, it's death. He's lost to a life of slavery and death. No, he has to do something about Lot's lost condition. And look at Abram's maturity here. Whenever they divided up the directions that they were gonna go, Abram says to Lot, here's the whole land before you. Whatever direction you go, that'll be good. You take that part, I'll be on the other. Lot looks around and he chooses the very best, the most lush, the most exciting part of the land for himself. So Abram is now repaying Lot's selfishness with his own selflessness. That's what you wanna do. That's the mark of maturity. Uh, typically what we do is when somebody's selfish, we're selfish right back. Uh, you took the big piece last time. You got the big piece of chicken last time. Uh, this time I get the big piece of chicken. Come on. You know what they fry that stuff in. Just let them have the big piece of chicken if they want it. <laughs> You'll do better on the, okay, so that's maturity. Again, Vaught says it so well. I mean, these guy's just so funny. I, I, just let me read you this quote. Vaught says, Lot jumped ahead and said, I'll choose that. In that act, Lot ignored every principle of grace. He was just a total stupid idiot. <laughs> I mean, this is a Bible scholar, I, you know. <laughs> he was just a total stupid idiot. But Abram gave him fairness for unfairness. Justice demands justice. And God had given grace to Abram, so God taught him how to act. Abram didn't say to Lot when he went to rescue him, I told you so, you never should have left me in the first place. But Abram had learned divine justice from God and therefore he treated Lot in divine justice. Abram lived by the principle of Romans 12, 19, hundreds of years before Paul ever wrote that scripture. Romans 12, 19 says, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, 
but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So what does Abram do? They took my, they took my nephew. I've lost him. I, I have to do something about it. So he takes his armed, trained servants, and he goes after Lot. So the key there in verse 14 is you ought to underline that word trained. Because if they hadn't been training, they couldn't do anything about this catastrophe. Because they had been training, they're ready for the work that's before them. They're trained, they're prepared for battle, they're trained up. I guess that's the question I would ask us is, are you trained? Are you trained up? Do you know how to use the sword of the spirit in the lives of people who are lost and taken captive by this lost world? by the condition of their sin nature? Do you know how to see souls delivered from sin and death and hell? They're prepared for battle. Are you trained up to deliver lost souls taken captive by sin? And so that starts with the cost of discipleship. That's how we train up people here at MBT. We start where Jesus started in Luke chapter 14. Have you counted the cost to be Christ's disciple? Because if you're gonna do it, it's according to God's word, not according to what you think or how you feel or your changing circumstances. A lot of people start well, they don't finish well because their feelings, their experiences, their changing circumstances. In other words, they elevate their perception over above what the word of God declares to be true over their life. And, and, and Jesus' whole position is, is, I'm not playing. You're either in or you're out. Count the costs. If you don't take up your cross, you can't be my disciple. If the relationship that you have with me and my word isn't, it isn't um, uh, the, 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 the primary motivating force, right? If that isn't preeminent, it's not gonna work. Uh, you're gonna have relationships in your life. They're gonna try and dissuade you from taking up a cross and following Christ. And so we start there, and then after that, we do, um, we do uh, what we call biblical discipleship. We've got 18 biblical studies that we wanna take a mature believer, a mature Christian, to pair them with you and just start walking through what the Bible says about your relationship with God. So we cover 18 topics in Discipleship One, and then after that, we start training you to train others, okay? It's called Discipleship Two, or our foundations courses. And in foundations, we train you how to be a minister and then how to minister. Uh, After that, we start pairing you up with other disciplers. Uh, You function as an apprentice. Uh, The the discipler begins to use you to help them disciple others. So in other words, that's the training wheels now on your training. Now you're beginning to use the sword of the spirit in spiritual warfare and in the lives of people and then that's the beginning of the training. After that, we've got um, an associate's degree. We've got LFBI, okay? There's 60 credit hours worth of classes from Genesis to Revelation with the goal of training you up in the word of God from cover to cover so you don't just know the Bible but you know how to use the word of God in the lives of people. Um, It's a good thing that this came up today because we just finished our first quarter of this semester. We've got three classes available for the second quarter. You can sign up for those at lfbi.org. Okay, you're qualified for the Bible school if you've been discipled yourself. Okay, you gotta start there. Uh, Anything to add to that, Brandon? I think, okay, so lfbi.org. You wanna check that out. Are you trained up? 
Or do you just attend services from time to time? You're not gonna get anywhere in a spiritual endeavor just watching. Brother, sister, there are souls taken captive by sin. We gotta do something. Who's gonna rescue them if we don't? Verse 15, notice his approach. He's a divide and conquer tactician. He divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is, I mean, man, he kicked their tail all over the promised land. He pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. So check out the map here. So again, in this area of the Dead Sea, and it, it, and it could have been that they, they would have come down into the Dead Sea uh, in this area. It could have been that they, 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 they cut over earlier. This route is based on the topography today. But it's gonna be in this area here, Sodom, Gomorrah, Zoar, Adama. This is where the battle takes place. And then the attack starts from there and goes all the way up to, I mean, look at Hoba. It's on the left hand of Damascus. I mean, incredible. Incredible. Notice it's by night. Uh, so all night, he's kicking their tails. So Abram plus 318 plus however many were with him in verse 13. It's not just Abram's 318 that he takes into battle, but remember he's got his boys in verse 13. They're with him. Them versus the armies, plural, this four um, superpower conglomerate, right? <laughs> that has, remember, they have the capability, these kings, to deal with the giants. Abram takes them out. So this is, I mean, just get it down. It's a supernatural victory, all the way to Hoba. I mean, bro, that is a lot of hiney whipping. All night, okay, so this, I mean, you look at the distances involved, it goes all night into all the next day. I mean, he's just been wailing on these guys. It's a nighttime victory, don't miss that, just like a, a victory that Gideon had in Judges chapter seven. Judges chapter seven verse nine says, it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, unto Gideon, arise, get thee down to the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. And then you see the deliverance in verses 16 through 22. What does Gideon do? Same thing Abram does, he divides his troops. Here Gideon divides them into three companies. And they have the, t- the, 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 the trumpets and the pitchers with the lamps in the pitchers. And, and so he gives the shout, the pictures are, uh, the lights are revealed from the pitchers and uh, when they break the pitchers and, and then they shout, right? They cry, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp and all the hosts ran and cried and fled. And the 300 blew the trumpets and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellows even throughout all the horse and they kick their tail all over the land. Okay, so there it is again. So you'll see the same thing. It is interesting. Later, after Israel is supernaturally delivered from the bondage of Egypt, and after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, you've got a group of people who are trained in war, and they're able to deal with giants in the land. Uh, They have a, Israel, again, will have a supernatural ability to deal with warfare on that scale. So Abram is giving, you know, he's like, a, he's, he's like a preview of the featured attraction to come. So get this down in your notes. What are we seeing here? All of this is a picture of the battle, the future battle of Armageddon. There's coming a day when Christ 
will have to deliver, he'll have to deliver Israel from a conglomerate of superpowers, nations who are coming together to wipe out the land of Canaan, right, the Jewish people. So Christ will have to deliver Israel from a wicked Assyrian. So God's not afraid of war. Men start wars, God finish wars, right? And so just understand this, okay? I just, I want you to get this. There is a time for war and there's a time for peace. And make no mistake, God does use violence to deal with the violent. Ecclesiastes 3.8 tells you that there is a time of war. That's in the Bible. Now, you wanna remember dispensationally where God has you. Is it time for you to war? No, you have God's grace and peace. Uh, God tells you vengeance is his, okay? You're, it's not your job to conduct war. Uh, keep your dispensations right, okay? We're in the first, we're, we're working under the first advent of Christ, not the second. God himself conducts wars. Numbers 21 verse 14 talks about the book of the wars of the Lord. The Lord Jesus himself is a man of war. Exodus 14 verse 14, the Lord shall fight for you. God himself fights. Jesus is called the captain of the Lord's host in Joshua chapter five in verses 13 through 15. Joshua sees a man with a sword drawn, right? There stood a man over against him with a sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went unto him and said unto him, art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord, I am now come. You see it again in verse 15. He's called the captain of the Lord's host. So Joshua saw Jesus Christ standing there with a sword drawn. Again, why? Because God will use violence to deal with the violent. God himself holds the current individual record of slaughter and battle. Look at 2 Kings 19, verse 35. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out. Usually, you see that phrase, the angel of the Lord. That'll be a reference to a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, we We will run that to ground when we get to the angel of the Lord in the book of Genesis. So the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians and hundred and hundred fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. The angel of the Lord did that. You say, man, that, that's scary. That's nothing. In the battle of Armageddon, read about it. Read about who comes from Basra with his garments stained with red because he's tramping, I mean, he's stamping, right? He's trampling the wine press of God's wrath. He's trampling his enemies. In the battle of Armageddon, the Lord Jesus Christ, meek and mild, lowly, born of a virgin, laying in a manger, he'll slaughter millions. I mean, hello. Everybody wants Jesus, everybody wants God to be the God of their own design. Okay, don't miss who he is. Ignore Christ's love at your peril. Ignore his righteous judgment at your own peril. You know, men are so arrogant, they think they can dictate to God the terms of eternity. You're not gonna tell God how eternity is gonna work out. God, you have to let me into heaven because I've been a really good person. No, it doesn't work that way. There's none good, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says that God is angry at the wicked every day. 
But the Bible's also very clear that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. So what are you gonna do when you're considering your own sin before a holy and righteous God who says vengeance is mine, I will repay. I don't know about you, but I'll tell you what happened to me. At 12 years of of age, I saw it for what it was, and I begged God for mercy and forgiveness. I claimed it because Christ died for me at Calvary. Lord, deal, I'll take it. I know you love me, I know Christ died for my sin. I know my sin was so wicked that that's what it took, and so Lord, I know you love me. I know you would never want me to be in hell, but I also know if I don't humble myself, if I don't submit right now, that's where you'll place me. You know, to begin the dispensation of grace, Jesus, his first coming, introduces a time for believers, followers of him, people who take up their cross and follow him. This is a dispensation, this is an age where we turn the other, we turn the other cheek. That's what we do. Because we're following Christ in the first advent. But there will be no cheek turning in the battle of Armageddon. Be saved while it's called today. Psalms chapter two. God's gonna break the wicked with a rod of iron, verse nine. He's gonna dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 10 gives the needed response in this world. Be wise now therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Repent and be saved while it's called today. One way or another, the wages of your sin will be paid. And either Christ paid it through his sacrifice at Calvary or you'll spend eternity paying it in your own power and your own strength. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And death and sin are cast into a lake of fire. Do the math. God is not willing that any would perish. That all in repentance of sin and faith toward God, faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would call on him. Just for your notes, check out Romans 13. God is for state punishment. He sets that up. But let's wrap up very quickly with this. Verses 16 and 17. Abram because this is a supernaturally empowered victory, Abram recovers all. Everything that was lost, Abram gets it back. He brought back all the goods and brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him, meet Abram after his return from the slaughter of Kedor uh, Kedor La Omer and all the kings that were with him in the valley of Sheba, which is the king's dale. So what's the picture there? Well, when Christ comes to deliver Israel in the second advent, it will be a complete and total victory. Romans 11, 12, or I'm sorry, 26 tells you in Christ coming in his second advent to rescue Israel, it says, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So that's the primary picture there. Abram having complete and total victory. Uh, What was potentially gonna be utter destruction in the promised land is completely saved and restored. Does everybody see that? When Christ comes, what 
looks like is going to be the utter destruction of the Jewish people by the Antichrist and a superpower conglomerate of nations, uh, they'll be utterly put down. And Romans 11 tells you all Israel shall be saved. But what about you? When Jesus came for you, what happened? I mean, you were lost and dead in sin. I know when Jesus came for me, it was total victory. My sin was forgiven. I was given the righteousness of God in the person of Christ. I was born again, I was made a child of God, a new creature in Christ. My old life has passed away. Behold, all things are become new as God's child. I know that his mercies are new every morning. What happened when Christ came for you? Well, if you let him, you got total victory. Colossians 3, or Colossians 1, verse 13 says that we're delivered, right? Jesus hath, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Have you been delivered when Jesus came for you? Did you get total victory in Christ? You say, well, I know I got total victory from the wages of sin, but man, I, I'm really struggling with some things right now. Man, what God begins in you, he will continue. He will perform it until the day he comes for you, until the day of redemption, until the day of the rapture of the church, until the day of resurrection. Um, when you get saved, right, that starts in your mind and in your heart. You submit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You recognize you're a sinner and that that sin righteously separates you, right? It's, it's correct that that sin cuts you off from right relationship with God because God cannot countenance sin, okay? There's no sin allowed in his presence. And he declares it up front. The wages of sin is death. The last thing he ever wanted for man was death. He warned Adam, do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he's not willing that he, would perish, that he would perish. Why, because in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The wages of sin is death. God's always been warning us away, but we, I mean, look at us. Man, we're by nature the children of wrath. <laughs> we run to sin. This is why we recognize that, right? We recognize the exceeding sinfulness of sin, and, and at some point we gotta give up and say, God, rescue me. I recognize my sin deserves your wrath. I also recognize your love. That's why you poured your wrath over my sin on the person of Christ at Calvary. He took my sin to the cross of Calvary. You reckoned him there that day with all of my sin. All of your wrath was satisfied over it 2,000 years ago. And so my part is, Lord have mercy on me, I am a sinner. Lord thank you for coming, dying for my sin. Thank you for loving me so much that you were willing to take my place. Forgive my sin. Lord Jesus, thank you for your death, your burial, and your resurrection. I know you hear my prayer. Lord, come into, your, come into my heart and life and save me. Lord, I surrender my life. All I want is yours. <laughs> it's the greatest trade in the history of all of eternity, okay? It's the greatest trade ever that you would be able to trade out your sin and God's wrath over it for God's righteousness through the finished work of Christ at Calvary. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want that? Well, you know, there is the pleasure of sin for a season and I'm doing what I'm doing now and eventually when I get older and I'm tired of this season of sin, 
uh, then I'll humble myself and I'll give my life to Christ. Man, you have no promise of tomorrow. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Some of you, you're playing with it because you don't want to surrender your life to Christ. You know intrinsically, you know who he is. He is the Lord, Jesus Christ. And so you don't want to surrender your life to Christ because that means you don't get to do what you want to do, live the way that you want to live. Because Jesus is Lord. Well, you've been running as Lord for a while. How is that working out for you? At some point, you have to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. At some point, you have to say, not my will, but thine. Father, I come to you right now in Jesus' name, and Lord, I'm praying for men and women, brothers and sisters, and Lord, I'm asking that you would apply Genesis chapter 14 to our heart and our life. And for some today, that means walking away from Sodom, walking away from building a life for ourselves in this world and recognizing like Abram, you've called us to be stewards. You've called us to be ambassadors. We're pilgrims and strangers here and so that Lord, we need a paradigm change and we need to not be living life for ourselves but we need to be investing the life you've entrusted to us for your glory. But there are some here today, Lord, I know for a fact that don't know you and they've got reasons and excuses for why they won't submit their life to Christ. And so Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. God, would you pour out your spirit and conviction? And um, Lord, would you, make it, would you make it very easy for people to see their need for the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in their life? And, and so Lord, I ask for this for your glory, for their good. Lord, I ask for that blessing today in Jesus' name, amen.